News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I love when you purr like a kitten. No, I'm just practicing. Roll up the rim. It's time to play Roll Up the Rim to Win at Tim Hortons. Oh, that's a classic one, isn't it? An old Tim Hortons commercials there. I think only in Canada do the words Roll Up the Rim have so much meaning. I mean, it's true. We are the ones who immediately think, hey, maybe we can win something when we hear that phrase. And lots of people try. I know I've tried in the past and I think, yeah, I can do this. Maybe you got a donut. Maybe you got a coffee. And sometimes you get nothing. So is it really maybe just dependent on when you are buying something at Tim Hortons. Well, guess what? A professor has actually analyzed the Tim Hortons Roll Up the Rim to Win contest and has found what the odds are to actually win something. Turns out the odds aren't great. It's worse than gambling, but we're going to hear all about it now. Uh, Michael Wallace joins us, an associate professor of biostatistics in the Department of Statistics and Actuarial Science at the University of Waterloo. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why did you do this? <laughs> well, it, it, it's just a couple of things. Um, so one thing is just like I'm, you know, I've always been a, a math guy. Uh, you know, that's how you end up as a statistics professor. You know, I love math. I love numbers. Um, but I also love puzzles and, and things like contests like roll up. Um, they've always kind of fascinated me uh, trying to figure out, you know, how, how are they designed? How do they work? You know, are there are there little little details, little exploits you can find? Um, and then the other angle of this, of course, is the at the University of Waterloo. Um, I actually teach one of our big introductory statistics courses, and um, statistics, it, you know, it can have a bit of a, a reputation for being a bit dry, a bit boring. You know, math and equations in textbooks. So I'm always looking for ways to find real world examples. Um, of data and analysis and statistics um, that have some kind of, you know, fun implementation that I can bring into the classroom to, to really engage my students. Okay, well, this one certainly fits that bill. You've certainly done that because you're talking about a contest that's been around for almost 40 years, which Canadians get deeply involved in. So how did you go about gathering the data for this? Yeah, so, um, so of course, a few years ago, you know, we're, we're much more used to it being roll at the rim and, and on those physical cups. Uh, and then a few years ago, they they moved it from the physical cups to the digital app um, and that you know changed the game and and one of the big changes that made was you know you'd still go into tim's and buy your coffee but instead of rolling up, up your cup there and then uh, you'd earn what they called a digital role that you'd play on the app and the big change was that you can choose when to play that role on the app um, and as you said uh, in your introduction um, what matters is when you choose to play that game so i wanted to figure out when are people playing and when are they not playing? Because you want to be playing when other people aren't. You're kind of in competition with one another. Okay. And so this year, I just have to ask you, sorry, thing. let me just ask you, why do I want to be playing when other people aren't? Sure. So, so the way the game works now um, is that you can, you can almost imagine like the prizes are kind of flying through the air above you. Um, and you want to play the game on the app just as a prize is flying past. And if you, you play a little bit too early, uh, the prize may have already gone past your head. And if you play a little bit too late, someone else might have reached up and grabbed it just before you got there. So you're kind of competing with everyone else playing at the same time to try and snatch those prizes. So if you play when other people aren't, um, there's fewer people competing with you to grab those prizes and you have a better chance of winning. Okay, so the pool, what you're saying is the pool of prizes are always there. It's just how mm -hmm. many people are pulling prizes out of the pool at the time that you're playing. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. 
Okay, because I'm not great at math, so I'm trying to make sure that I can wrap my head around <laughs> that's what you're talking about here. Okay, so then yeah. did you find the best time to be doing this? Absolutely. So I've been kind of, you know, it, I've been in a little bit of a, it's been described as a chess, chess match with Tim's because a few years ago I started doing this stuff and I won a lot and then they changed the rules and I didn't win so much and it's been a bit of back and forth. Um, but then this year um, they published more data and if you're a statistician, your favorite thing is, is when people publish data. And if you go to the website, you can see the number of prizes that have been awarded. So right now they've given out, I don't know, 14 million, 15 million prizes, something like that. But that number, the number of prizes that have been won, uh, you can track that number over time and you can see it increasing. And it goes up faster. The number of prizes being won goes up faster when more people are playing. Um, and then in like the middle of the night, it's going up slower when fewer people are playing. So I could grab those numbers, run some analysis uh, and come up with, uh, with the best time to play. Okay, let's hear it then, Michael. When is the best time to play? I want to win something. Okay, okay. well, you've you got to keep this between us, okay? Because uh, <laughs> if, if, everyone, if everyone does this, if everyone does this, it might not work. But uh, just between you and me, the, the best time was 3.16 a.m. Is that Eastern? Because we're on the Pacific. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I, I forgot to correct. Yes, that, that, that's three. So in fact, on, this is a good point. On the, on the West Coast, uh, that's, that's 16 minutes past midnight. So you're 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 in a better place than I am to uh, to, to yeah. Take that's it. doable for us out here. It's not like having to set my alarm in the middle of the night to get up and play <laughs> roll up the rim to win. So for us here on the West Coast, twelve sixteen a.m. would be the best time. So that is when the the fewest people are playing and the most prizes are available. Would you say? That that's definitely what my what my experience experiments have shown. You know, I tested this because uh, I, I also know when the worst time to play is. Um, so. Uh, part of what makes this game tricky is that, you know, it's a national game. So you've got to think about all those time zones. So, you know, I'm, ba- I'm based on the East Coast um, and I'm looking at the data and I'm, I'm able to see how people are behaving throughout the day. Um, and what I found was that uh, the worst time to play uh, would be uh, 11.46 Eastern, so 8.46 Pacific. And I think that makes sense because you're catching both, you know, we've exactly. got, we're getting into the lunch loss lunch rush over here whilst you guys are you know waking up and getting your 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 morning coffee just before you head to work so you don't want to play uh around that time um the later in the day you play the better okay so there's clearly a strategy here and i love this so i guess with the way they've got it now on the app you can save it to play when you want to right yep exactly and that that's the big that's the big difference from going from those physical cups uh, to the digital platform. Because when it was a physical cup, you know, it didn't matter. You, you bought your coffee, you given your cup, you could roll it immediately, you could roll it, whatever. The writing on the cup wasn't going to change. But with the way the app works now, you can buy your drinks whenever and then choose when to play the actual roles on the app. And that's the strategy. Okay, I love this. Now, you are clearly making statistics fun for a lot of people, Michael. <laughs> so is this a lesson you are going to use this in your class and do students immediately go, ah, I get this? Uh, so far, yeah, I, I've always had like lectures based around contests and games like this. I've I've had roll up uh, in various forms in my lectures in the past. Back when it was on the cups, actually, um, there was a bit of a, an internet conspiracy that you were more likely to win if you bought an extra large coffee than a small. coffee. I remember this, yes. Yeah, and and I had an example in class where we had those data, 
um, you know, there was a website gathering those data and I used it as a teaching example and showed that, nope, there's, there's no conspiracy. It, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and in fact, when they moved away from the physical cups, I had to change that example. It, it didn't work anymore because you couldn't, you couldn't roll up the rim in, on those cups. So, yeah, I'm always looking for these examples. I've got this ready to go. Uh, next time I teach in the fall, I'm going to have a whole lecture about all of this stuff. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I love this. Okay, so what other things do you like to ruin for people about what <laughs> about the best way to win something? Well, I, so right now, actually, um, I, I swear my whole life isn't Tim Hortons, but they, they also <laughs> Tim Tim's also has a game. They've got a, a an NHL hockey prediction oh, game yes. at the moment, um, and I'm. I'm very invested in that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big sports fan as well, but uh, but I'm also doing lots of stats on that. And that we're getting towards the end of the season. And currently, um, in the country, out of about a million players, I'm ranked 20th. So that's occupying a lot of my time as I'm. We're getting close to the end, and I'm sort of I'm I'm kind of up there uh, thanks it. to a lot of a lot of math. You know, there's an NBA version of that. I play the NBA version of that. You should try that one too. Yeah, NBA head to head. You should try that. It's a lot of fun. Do you go to Vegas, Michael? Like, do you do you go to casinos? <laughs> I, I I have been to casinos, by, but um, I, I I tend not to I tend not to play too much. I do remember there was one time actually there was a statistics conference, a you know, meeting of statisticians, um, and it was hosted at a casino, which I found the most you know, baffling thing because we were all there and you'd see these statisticians and they'd just be going from meeting to meeting and never touching the casino floor. So, That's so you know, funny. I, I visited, you know, I like, I like the lights, I like the shows. I'm a little bit more careful when it comes to the game. <laughs> you know what, Michael, this has been <laughs> fascinating. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Michael Wallace is an associate professor of biostatistics in the Department of Statistics and Actuarial Science at the University of Waterloo. He's cracked the code. So in case you missed it, he says, if you now play that digital, like the app version of Roll Up the Rim to win Tim Hortons, that the best time to play in order to win a prize is here on the West Coast, 12 16 a.m. So you missed your window for today because right now we're in the window where he said, don't do it. Because now, you know, when you compare this to the time zone back east, there's too many people going to Tim Hortons right now and playing the game. So the best time for us, 12 16 a.m., you actually greatly improve your chances of actually winning something. This is Mornings with Simi. More than 215 people arrested. More than 200 charges forwarded to Crown Council. That's just in three weeks. Three weeks of an anti-shoplifting blitz by Vancouver police. And does that give us an idea of how incredibly widespread this shoplifting problem is? Have you seen it? I think lots of people have. If you work in a retail store, you undoubtedly have. Local businesses are facing a huge challenge in dealing with this. And joining us now to talk about that is Tony Hunt, who's the general manager of loss prevention at London Drugs. Tony, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me a bit about your participation in this Operation Barcode then. Was this something that you said, yes, come on, let us help out with this? Yes, absolutely. Um, we work very closely with our other retail uh, partners, retail industry uh, uh, stakeholders. We work together to try and come at a common foe here, which is a threat to our staff, 
uh, a, uh, a, you know, a, a tsunami of shoplifting that we're seeing now creating great losses. So when we can work with law enforcement and Vancouver police has been very cooperative uh, to try and see if we can't suppress some of the intense crime that we're seeing, uh, we jump on board and uh, many of the businesses made large contributions of, uh, you know, their own security teams to be able to help monitor and report during this time to get an idea of just how bad the problem really is and come up with some solutions, hopefully. Now, you said a tsunami of shoplifting. Now, how how bad is it? And, and what, do you think it got worse in the last couple of years? Yeah, we've seen in the, in the retail industry, and this is not just a Vancouver problem, we're seeing across the country, we're seeing across the United States, a, a large lift in shoplifting activity, large losses to retailers. And you're seeing increases of on the magnitude of about 20 to 25% across retail. Now, this is a significant amount because retail runs on very small margins. So the profit that comes from you know the sale of goods needs to pay for you know increases in staff wages, increases in costs for rent increases in costs just like any you know consumer or homeowner is seeing increases in costs those increases in costs need to be borne by the the retail business and you know whether it's a mom and pa shop trying to make ends meet or a larger company like us a medium-sized company we're seeing really significant increased costs so these you know large 20 25 percent increases in losses uh, are making it very unsustainable in some places in north america to operate stores and you see large and small retailers and 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 unfortunately their staffs out of business because of it where are some of the worst hit london drugs locations um, we see a uh, high concentration, as you can imagine, in the downtown core. Uh, but uh, what we're seeing is this is uh, it's almost a regional problem these days. When you see uh, intensity of you know street disorder and street crime happening, uh, you obviously get a lot of activity. Uh, but uh, a lot of this is driven by, as you can imagine, you know drug dependency uh, or uh, an, you know an epidemic of of homelessness and mental illness that you see out there on the streets and the goods that are stolen are, are, are most often stolen for resale these days, the ones that we're concerned about. And that radiates out through a region because, you know, you can't pick on, you know, one victim all the time in those situations if you're stealing every day for your needs. So are you worried about your staff? Like what are some of the incidents that have happened? There's been uh, there's been a countless incidents. I mean, one just needs to uh, you know take a look at YouTube at all the different incidents they're seeing across North America. Uh, when we look at our uh, situation, we've seen over the last five years, pre-COVID, we started to see a, a real build and a real increase in violence and abuse against retail workers. We're not alone. Our, our, our counterparts across the industry are seeing the same thing, and we saw a five-fold increase over the last five years. And uh, the good news is, is as we've applied um, you know, cooperative pressure like this over the last three months, we've seen a, a decrease, but it is still an overwhelming uh, amount of uh, abuse, spitting, uh, racial slurs, um, shoving, pushing, throwing things um, associated with both shoplifting incidents and also just really bad behavior by some people in, in public spaces. Oh, that's awful. What do you think, Tony, would make a difference here? Well, it clearly, it seems in some ways like it's open season on retail workers and frontline uh, employees in service businesses. Uh, one, would, one would think that, 
in the event that something like this was to happen in a ministerial office or a judge's chambers or in a in a in a you know government agency office someplace on a regular basis, there would be swift and decisive action by all levels of government and ministries uh, across all levels of government. Um, I think we need a coordinated effort by uh, government of all levels, social services agencies, corrections. Um, uh, there needs to be uh, a, an approach, a practical approach by the BC Prosecution Service administratively uh, to be able to make sure that things where you know people are offending and there's violence involved are dealt with very promptly. So somebody's not on the street immediately or waiting on a court date for a year and a half and through that time victimizing people in retail and frontline uh, service worker uh, you know, occupations and jobs. People need to feel safe. And uh, we need a bunch of different people to come together to help make that happen. Is that what you've seen? Is it the same people? Like they get arrested and the next day they're back? Oh, there's there's been an absolute um, uh, pattern uh, emerge of people who are in, you know, many times high needs and desperate situations themselves to be able to steal, to be able to feed habits or or to be able to exist. Um, and, uh, you know, they come in with higher levels of desperation all the time. And there's an, a, an ongoing escalation where people are committing, you know, violent shoplifting, utilizing weapons and taking what they think they need because they feel they have to. And it needs to be interceded with uh, somebody needs to interrupt that pattern. Um, in this particular uh, project we just did, I know that the VPD mentioned they had somebody who committed two offenses, stealing with a knife being shown, um, you know, uh, and, and, and in short order was back out on the streets and doing it again within 24 hours. So um, we do see that and yeah. we see it fairly often. I guess I wonder as well here, Tony, like this is great, you know, Operation Barcode three week blitz. But what happens when the three week blitz is over? Well, yeah, that's a, it's a great question. It falls immediately on the feet of the businesses and the managers and the employees who have to, you know, work every single day to try and make sure that their stores are safe. And you're dealing with this at a time where there's incredible increased cost. It's very difficult to find, um, you know, uh, enough people to be able to um, have qualified security staff and security workers in place. Um, it's very difficult to you know, find people. Um, I know I've had conversations with security professionals that don't want to work in the downtown core, for example, because they have to deal with, you know, uh, uh, very different uh, volumes of crime that we have there. So it falls on the retailer and their staff. Um, and uh, the good news is, is we have great partners in the Vancouver police who are, uh, you know, working with us on that. And we have other municipalities where we have police agencies that help us as well. But uh, it's, it's an incredibly stressful situation for retail workers and they need to feel safe and we need help. Yeah, I'll bet they do. How can we help? Well, I think it's important that the public recognizes that when they see you know goods that are for sale that would typically be in a in a in a store uh you know razor blades and oil of olay uh, uh, you know spatial creams that sort of thing batteries uh and they're being sold uh secondhand uh in a location um it's a good idea to check in and and try and see if you can figure out whether or not it's even sourced by a, a legitimate purpose the goods that are being stolen in these stores are being stolen in large enough quantities that they're there for illicit sales purposes and so that's important but pressure, uh, you know, we've got 
thousands and thousands of people who work in retail in this province. And uh, all of us are related to somebody who are working in retail. And we need to tell our MLA and our, uh, you know, our mayors and councils and uh, our police agencies that we need focused support on making sure that frontline service workers in, you know, retail and restaurants are, are kept safe and that the justice system is there to make sure that once somebody shows a pattern of abusing people, that, uh, that something's done about it to interrupt that pattern. Agreed. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Tony Hunt, anytime. Tony Hunt, a general manager of loss prevention at London Drugs, talking about their struggle with shoplifting. And you know what? Tony makes an excellent point. Don't buy the stuff. You know what? A lot of people come across the stuff, right? It is being sold. A lot of it is not being stolen for personal consumption. Don't buy the stuff. Uh, that's why they're doing it because it's profitable, right? They're making money off of it too. So we also have a role to play here. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It's hard for a lot of people to get primary care these days, right? But if you're a vulnerable woman living on the downtown east side, those challenges also seem insurmountable. Getting vulnerable people connected to the healthcare system has always been a challenge and remains so. Why is it so important? Because it's the first step in helping them to move away from a high-risk lifestyle. And now there's a new way to help make that happen. We're going to learn all about it right now. Uh, Jashiel Athalia joins us now with the Women's Mobile Primary Care Program. Uh, she's the manager of the Vancouver Aboriginal Health Society. Jashiel, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you, Simi, for having me. Tell me about this mobile program. What's new about this? Um, so I think what's really different and unique about this specific program is that it is, um, you know, it's primary care. It's not episodic care that we are focusing on. Um, it's really trying to build that continuum of care, something that's long-term sustainable and something that, um, again, street-entrenched women can access as their primary care healthcare service. So that is really essentially the hope with this program because we've seen through research and studies um, that Having long-term access to health care, something that's ongoing and continued, does tend to improve, well, overall outcomes in terms of determinants of health. Um, so that, that really is why this is, is different and unique, I think, to the Vancouver downtown Eastside area. Right. So you're going to them to try to connect them yeah. rather than making them look for the resources. Yes, and, and I mean, yeah, that's that's the thing. It's mobile, right? And that, that's the added thing where we're removing that barrier. It's really, it, it's meant to be accessible. We don't require a, a health card number. We don't require um, any appointments. Really, we, we're on site. Um, if there's a need, uh, we want to get that need met to the best of our ability. Okay, and so how do you do that? What kind of reaction do you get from some of the women that you're talking to? You know, it's um, it's varied. Um, I've, I've been I've been in the working the downtown inside before. I mean, what I do what I do know is that um, women have expressed that this is a need. Um, healthcare is a need. Accessing primary care services um, on an ongoing basis is a need. Um, so I there's definitely a lot of excitement, definitely a lot of hope. But you know, like like with anything, this is the start. So women are weary as well. Like they're they're you know they're like, will this really stay? Will this be long term? You know, those are definitely some of the questions on their minds but we're hoping that this will be an ongoing thing for four years to come in the downtown east side that is the hope um and so yeah we, we really hope to 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 launch uh, i mean to 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 put out a successful program that uh, that meets women where they're at in the downtown east side 
So how, how often is this being used? Is it every day? Um, no, it's, it's not going to be five days a week. What we're really aiming for is three days a week. Um, you know, we will have um, physicians, so we will have doctors, we'll have nurses, um, we will have uh, we have a social worker full time for this program, and then of course the the added piece that is also so important is that we have a cultural support outreach worker um, that is dedicated to this program. Um, you know, as we we know that you know about thirty five to forty percent of the population in the downtown east side does consist of indigenous peoples, and um, that cultural safety uh, component and that uh, cultural support component is really, really what makes this primary care service um, uh, holistic for for that specific population. But it is open to all self-identified women. Interesting. All right, Jashil, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. Take that, care. You too. That is Jashil Athalia, who is the Women's Mobile Primary Care Program Manager with the Vancouver Aboriginal Health Society. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot of talk about what Vancouver City Council is up to these days. Now, last night they voted to speed up the pace of change along the Broadway corridor and not slow down. They're voting on bike lanes along Broadway today, and they've also been talking about grants. Now, this is the money that they give to different nonprofit organizations, arts, culture, sports, or health-related, all over the city to help them out. Every year, this is a process that happens. But should that money come with strings attached? Should an organization have to say only nice things about politicians in order to get that money? Or should council be able to, you know, find a different way for accountability to recognize the greater good the organization does? Well, I don't know. It seems to me that this week some of the ABC councillors said the quiet part out loud when they voted to bring in what they call respectful communication standards. What does that mean? And how does that impact groups who maybe want to speak out about what they see in city government but also perhaps would like some grant funding as well. Well, Jen St. Denis has been covering this story. She's a reporter for the TIE and joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Jen. Hi, Sunny. So, so what have you heard about this? How is this kind of decision for respectful communication standards impacting nonprofits? Well, first of all, I just want to fully credit my colleague, Dan Fumano at the Vancouver Sun. Um, he is the one who actually wrote this story. He was in, he was covering City Hall on, on Tuesday and covering what's normally kind of a boring, non-newsworthy kind of topic, um, which is um, giving out these, this grant money to organizations. Um, I just happen to have some spicy opinions about it on Twitter <laughs> and have actually sort of experienced a little bit of um, chill from organizations who were already scared about speaking out because of some previous um, decisions with grant money. Um, and so that's why I decided to speak about it on Twitter. Right. So I guess my concern with this is what are the accountability measures? Like, are you saying is the money going to what you thought the money was going to go to? That should be the primary accountability mm-hmm. measure. But this is a little bit different, right? So what are you hearing from these yeah. organizations? Yeah. So what happened on Tuesday was that Councillor Peter Beisner, who's with the um, ABC party, which has this very strong majority on council right now, um, he started talking about how, you know, he's concerned that some of the some of the groups that are getting this grant money from the city, this taxpayer funding, 
um, are not always being super respectful in their comments about um, politicians. Um, and he gave one example, and he didn't say who said it, but Dan is a really good reporter, so he used his crack investigative skills to find this out. Um, it was a comment made by Rachel Lau, who's part of this organization called Guerrero Intergenerational Society, and they support um, low-income Chinese seniors in Chinatown. Um, and the comment that Peter Meinsner had a problem with was Rachel saying this after the election, I know that the Chinese-Canadian community is really excited about the first Chinese-Canadian mayor. I just want to point out that just because somebody looks like you doesn't mean they're actually going to take care of you. That's the unfortunate truth. Um, and so this is the example that Councillor Meisner gave of something that he had a, a comment in the media that he had a problem with. Um, and was and the councillors actually voted for this respectful communication amendment um, tied to grant money. I think they took out the word nonpartisan. Um, but I really have a concern about this because I, I've already, you know, had organizations tell me, oh, I can't talk about this because I'm worried that my grant funding might be cut. Okay, see that, and that's the part that I wonder because, yeah, sure, we should be nice to each other, but if they, if a nonprofit organization or somebody sees something that is, you know, worthy of criticism or wants to bring something to light, does that mean that they might not do that now because they're afraid? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it was already happening. You know, we kind of have a problem in Canadian society that I find all the time as a reporter that we don't. We're a lot of people are scared to speak out in general. They're worried about losing their job or some sort of, you know, consequence. Um, and getting, if you're a nonprofit, getting your grant funding cut has always been kind of a concern. And I experienced this after, you know, there was a previous decision by this council to decide to not give um, $7,500 to the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users for this art program. And councillors were upset about how Vandu had used a previous grant, a street cleaning grant, and so because of that, they decided to cut this $7,500 grant. And, you know, then I was reporting on another issue, actually, an issue about something completely different, renter, the renter's office. Um, and, yeah, I had, had this comment made to me that, oh, we can't talk about that because, um, you know, we're worried about the consequences. Right. But so, see, are these two different things, though? Because in that case, they were worried. They, the concern was where had they actually spent the money, right? Which is different from yeah, criticizing sure. City Hall. Yeah, that's different. Um, but my point is that when you kind of make examples out of organizations like this, um, which is sort of the perception of what ABC was doing, whether that's fair or not, that was the perception in the community. Um, you know, it's always going to kind of trickle down and make people scared to speak out. And I worry about that as a reporter. So so that's an example where, yes, they were concerned about how Bandy was spending the money. And that's a little different than what's happening here. But I'd argue now that's kind of gone even farther. And they've actually asked staff to monitor media and social media for um, things that organizations are saying. And so I think that I'm worried that that's going to just lead to even more people saying, well, I'm worried about even speaking out at all about anything. And I think that could be a real detriment to our city. So do we know what that means, though, when they say respectful communication standards? I mean, what if it's a whistleblower? What if there's waste at City Hall? What if there's some ethics yeah. thing they want to raise concerns about? That's the problem I have with this. It's so vague. Um, you know, we're, I was just talking about the example with Vandu not getting this funding. Well, at least there, there was there was a rationale. There yes, was an explanation exactly. of something that had happened in the past. Um, 
There was another previous decision that was also really controversial um, a few years ago. Council decided not to fund Vancouver Rape Relief because they weren't offering services to trans women. And that was controversial, but it was at least clearly explained in their decision. When you say respectful communication, it's just so unclear what that applies to. And they're also saying that it's, it's to do with their respectful communication in the workplace policy, which applies to the workplace and applies to comments made in, at City Hall. But, you know, there's lots of stuff that these organizations are not employees of the city. And yes, there are standards of communication that have to happen in City Hall. But that's when you're outside of City Hall, you know, I think this is a real kind of gray area here. And it's not really so then if people don't know what what the boundaries are. They're just going to be scared to talk about out about anything. All right. They're going to err on the side of caution. Jen, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate that. Jen St. Denis is a reporter for the TIE. So I find this discussion, this particular topic really interesting because to me, shouldn't the only metric be how much of a benefit a nonprofit organization is, is to helping taxpayers, right? Is the organization doing what it's supposed to? Is the city grant money doing what they said it was going to do? Period. That's it. In the case of Van Du, I supported that one because it did. It was appearing that that money was not doing what it was supposed to do. Therefore, there was accountability. What does it mean when you say, well, we don't want you saying nasty things about councillors or the mayor, and therefore we might not give you money? Well, this is taxpayer money, right? It's your money. And I feel like politicians should be a little bit more thick-skinned when it comes to perhaps getting some criticism. How are we going to find out if there are some concerns or complaints about, I mean, these, these things happen all the time. Are we going to get less of it now because of this? Now, to be fair, we did ask to speak to Councillor Peter Meisner about this. Like, where is the line? What does this mean? How, are you not concerned about how this is going to impact some groups about the fear that this, the chill that might, that might put out there? Uh, and weren't able to get that to today. Hopefully he'll talk to us about this tomorrow, but I just have a lot of questions about how this is going to work. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's so tough being a parent, right? Having kids is tough. Finding childcare is tough. Keeping childcare is tough. All of these things are really adding up to so many parents feeling exceptionally squeezed these days. So how do we help? I want to talk to a mother now who has been writing about this. Brittany Hopkins is with us, full-time mom and freelance journalist. Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me on. I know you've been writing about this. What made you want to talk about this issue kind of publicly? Um, I started looking into childcare before I moved to British Columbia. Um, we found a preschool and we thought that, you know, wow, we beat, we beat the problem. There's no problem. It's this talk. And, um, you know, soon after we moved, things changed. My husband got a full-time job, three hours of preschool, two kids we were juggling. And then I started really searching and I realized that we were stuck, that um, there really is a crisis. And um, it's a really complicated situation that I think a lot of parents don't fully understand. Um, I have well, a lot why of conversations. Do you, why do you think mm-hmm. that, that people don't fully understand it? From the conversations I have on the playground and what I see in the forums, it's we I think a lot of us have internalized it as um, a personal issue. And I think it's child care for, for a generation has been a personal problem. Um, but when I started looking into the statistics, I could see that the issues that I was facing aren't a personal problem. Um, there's societal forces that are keeping me at home with my kids struggling to get by 
12 to 14 hours a day, one person taking care of two kids, it's, it's too much. Um, and I think the government is working on fixes for us. It's a process. And um, I think that if we all understand the process a bit more, um, we can keep our province accountable and also engage in the system. Okay, what kind of what kind of process? Yeah, what kind of process do you mean? What do we need to understand more? Um, from what I'm learning, um, you know, there are many different types of childcare. Um, there's tons of in-home childcare. There's um, facilities. I think the vast majority that we have here are in-home. Um, and for example, when I moved here. Uh, I thought I could never put my kid in an in-home daycare because I honestly don't know what that looks like. I've never been into one. I've never met someone. It was over a year before I met a child care provider who offers in-home care. And I thought, oh, okay, this is a really nice way to do it. But that took over a year to actually meet someone who's doing that. So for an entire year, that whole opportunity, the vast majority of child care here wasn't available to me because I couldn't see it. I couldn't access it. Um, so... I feel like a lot of the information about childcare here is locked up in forums that you have to find on Facebook, on government websites that are just so voluminous that I can't find the right one. So I feel like a lot of the information that parents need isn't readily available. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, Brittany, because I guess, you know, I wonder, so what was it like? You, you moved here from another country, is that right? I did. I'm from California, but I had two kids um, just a couple of years ago in Argentina where we were living. We planned to live there and continue through until kindergarten because we knew that childcare was a difficulty and very expensive in, in where we were from in California. Um, but the pandemic changed everything. I mean, we were just home. Uh, my partner was working full time. I had a child full time. We actually weren't allowed to leave our apartments for a long time because of the pandemic restrictions. So my parenting experience was pretty intense for the first few years. Um, and then we were able to do preschool. Um, it was slightly different there. Um, I lived in a neighborhood where I could just call the preschools and, and they had space. Um, That's crazy. I feel like was, I've, <laughs> I've never heard of that. You could just call the preschool and they had space. I, I wonder, it, is, yeah. this, is this a post-pandemic thing? Like when you talk to other parents... I know it's always been a struggle to find childcare. I think that's a given, right? My kids are in their 20s and I remember having trouble with this too. But what do you think has, has what's been the tipping point? What has changed so much? I have read that um, a lot of operators quit after, during the pandemic. It was hard. I mean, it was scary. Um, it didn't feel safe. And a lot of people um, were ready to retire anyway. So that's what I have heard. Um, I do know that it was difficult to find childcare and afford childcare before um, but I think it has been exasperated here. And I've been reading that in Argentina, it has been exasperated there. The government is taking big steps to, move, to add more childcare there as well. So I do think it's a, I think the pandemic has made things worse. Um, my concern is that we're not thinking big enough. We're not thinking about the, the big changes that we could make. If we're just building the child care centers that we needed 30 years ago, it's not going to work for my kids in 30 years. And I'm going to be in the same situation wondering, okay, do I go off and travel the world now that I'm retired or do I stay here and take care of my kids, my grandkids full time while my kids try to work? Right. I don't want to be in this position 30 years from now. So I feel like I need to do something today. Okay. And what, what do you want people to know then? What do you think we should be doing? <sighs> I think... I think the first step is for us to really understand the fixes that are coming. I, I think it's really hard to know. I don't think that in in five years 
every every child who wants daycare here is going to have it. And I don't think that most parents think that. I think most people think that, you know, soon they'll have a $10 a day daycare. And I think that the government owes us more transparency and more accountability, more deadlines. When, when will it happen? And what are the steps needed? And what should the people be doing? Um, you can start a daycare um, nonprofit and get government funding. Does, any, does anybody in my sphere know how to do that? I don't think so. So I really want to help people understand the situation and the steps that they could be taking and the questions they should be asking the government. Oh, so interesting. Uh, listen, Brittany, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank Pre- you. Have appreciate a good that. You too. That's Brittany Hopkins, full-time mom and freelance journalist there. Having moved here from another country, she is having trouble over and overwhelmed by kind of navigating the childcare preschool system. And I mean, how often have we heard that, that we childcare has been a huge issue in the last few years, right? And we're getting more spaces and we're opening that up and we're trying to help people so that they can get back into the workforce and do all that, but still clearly not enough. It does feel overwhelming to people. If you want to share your story, simi at cknw.com and you can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. You love your pet, right? You love your dog, like really love your pet. But is your pet a part of your family or does it belong to you like property? Currently, the law in BC treats your pet as though it is property. But there is talk now of the provincial government taking a look at that and perhaps treating pets more like family, particularly when you have custody disputes, like when couples split up and they're trying to decide who gets the cat or who gets the dog. So what are the concerns here, though, if we make that change? I know a lot of pet lovers will immediately say, yes, this is a great idea, but is it? What does it mean, really? Well, Victoria Schroff joins us now, a long-serving animal lawyer practicing at Schroff & Associates in Vancouver. Victoria, thanks for being here. Pleasure. What are the concerns about changing the law to make pets more like family as opposed to property? Well, the first thing is that I think that this is actually a giant leap forward for um, conceiving of animals as more than just chattels like a toaster. So I'm actually really pleased with this idea of these amendments and, and the ethos behind it. Okay, but are there not concerns? Like, what does it change? So if a couple now goes and they're fighting over, you know, the dog, what does this mean? What would it, could it potentially mean? So what it means is basically that um, uh, the court is going to have more clarity and the court is going to have tools uh, for which to deal with the um, dissolution of the marriage vis-a-vis the pet. So so what can happen there is the court can look at a lot of factors that uh, previously the idea of pet custody has been quite a gray area. As you started off um, by introducing this piece, it's true that throughout Canada, throughout most of the world, Animals are property under the law. And so this is actually trying to flip the switch a little bit and say, you know, we understand the importance of animals. And um, we're basically seeing that there have to be some better and more relevant factors that we can consider for these difficult decisions. And and so so what what the amended um, or the proposed amendments bring is um, a flavor to the law that has not been seen before. And it would be actually groundbreaking in B.C. So I'm actually very excited about the idea that we can now look at things such as violence in the family. It's actually specified. Um, it's, it's there. It's spelled out in, in the law. 
um, in relation to pet hmm. custody. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, does this open the door, though? Allow me to just play devil's advocate here for a second. Okay. So, Victoria, does this open the door, then? If you're giving the pet, the dog, the cat rights in that fashion, where do we draw the line, though? For instance, what about if the decision has to be made to put the pet down? How does right. how does this change in law impact that kind of decision? Nobody wants to do that, but how does this impact that? Well, I don't think it would. I don't think it would really impact um, euthanizing an animal for medical reasons. So, let's say, for example, a veterinarian has signed off on the idea that this particular animal needs to be uh, euthanized um, medically, and I don't. I don't see how this law would actually impact that. Um, you know, it's 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 something that that you know. First, to also consider this, pet custody cases are not new. I will say that I can tell you about a case called Rogers versus Rogers from Ontario in 1980 that made the newspapers back in the day, way before social media. Uh, this was splashed all over the newspapers as a couple fighting over, I think at the time, was their hunting dogs. So the concept of pet custody and couples fighting over their family pets are not, it's not a new concept. It's something the courts have been grappling with. But what we're doing here with this kind of legislation, if it passes, is it's just allowing, I think, I really think it's going to make it easier for separating couples. I don't think we're going to see the scenarios that people have come up with, like the courts are going to be flooded. I know that's something that people have said. So that's something to, to you know, put your devil's advocate hat on and say, well, you know, people are going to be coming to court and we're just going to be inundated. I don't think so. I actually, I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, I think that um, this also gives people um, the opportunity to try to settle their matter and come to a private agreement as well prior to going to court. What about, say, mistreatment of pets? Right? What about mm-hmm. does this give something like the BCSPCA more power in seizing mistreated pets? Because if you're saying they have the rights to consider the kind of home they're going to live in, well, if the couple's not separating but they're in a home where they're being mistreated, how does that get dealt with? Ah, that's that's very interesting, and 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 that's that's you know lateral thinking that would be something that could come out of this legislation. Um, and yeah, no, it's but who gets to decide, like who is deciding what mistreatment is? I guess I just, I see a bit of a slippery slope here. Right. Well, that's, that's a really good point. And I think, I think that when, when, you know, I think the, the wording is about, um, it's, it's the willingness to care for the animal. Uh, there is a risk of family violence and threat of cruelty to an animal and more. So that's sort of the, the wording that I saw in the attorney general's press release where I'm also quoted, and it says, you know, I think, I think what, what the idea there is that um, it's got to be decided by the court as to what there has been, if there has been cruelty. And they would have, the person who's alleging it would have to bring that evidence. And it has to be good evidence. It can't just be someone's like, well, he, he or she is cruel to Fido. It has to, you know, you, you have to do things with evidence, not just bald right. allegations. But we have to say, we have to define, though, don't we, what is cruel? Because yeah. what some people yeah. might think is just, okay, I may not have my dog with me all the time. Somebody else who is perhaps a little bit more of a dedicated pet owner judges that. Yeah, no, and, and you raise a really good point. I think I think what, what you're getting at there is, you know, um, we want to make sure that the allegations are correct. Um, and who's deciding that? And I would say in this, in, 
if if it comes back to the the pet custody realm, you're looking at the court deciding that. But it would have to be based on the evidence. Now, let's say there had been an SPCA complaint, and um, the SPC, uh, SPCA investigates every single complaint they get, um, and so. You know, whether, you know, whether it results in action is another matter, but they investigate. Um, And so it's a question of saying, well, here was the finding of the SPCA officer and it could be it could be nothing. They might they might not have found that there was cruelty and they might have found that somebody was trying to weaponize the animal and say that the other party was um, cruel or had harmed the family pet when it wasn't true. Um, but there are instances where it is true, and it's called the violence link, where it's a gateway. Harming the animal is a gateway to then harming the human, or they're harming both together at the same time. This is this is a known thing in the literature. Right. It's something I look out for when I have my intake questions on a pet custody file, a new file. I ask, has there been family violence? But are we then? Are we not establishing? what we consider to be norms for pet ownership. If we're saying if there's a pet custody dispute, this is what is going to influence where that pet should go. But yet we let anybody have a pet, right? So like at what point are we saying those standards don't apply everywhere all the time? That's true. That's true. And so I think what's going to happen here too, Simi, is we're going to see how the courts end up sort of interpreting these provisions and especially at the BC Supreme Court level um, to see how how judges handle these provisions. And remember, it's going to be case specific. So, um, you know, it it will be a situation where um, if somebody is making these allegations, I think they should be able to back it up. Okay, so can the law of Victoria be written in such a way for it to be so narrow that it only deals with custody agreements? Um, in in this particular um, in this particular case, like if we're just talking about you know a dissolution of a marriage or this is this is what this is meant for. This particular um, statutory change will be changes to the Family Law Act, right? So that's that's the whole idea. The whole the whole impetus behind this was to introduce the amendments to also reflect the values that people hold for their family pet today, that where where pets are family, you know, like you started off saying, people love their their pets very, very much. So if we're talking about it within the confines of pet custody, I think this is, if these amendments pass, it's a huge win. Now, how this may play out in, for example, um, strata and condominium law, residential tenancy, um, you know, would would somebody make arguments, lateral arguments based on this, uh, this statute? Yes, it's possible that somebody could try, and then it would be up to the adjudicator to sort of look at things and say, well, what I think you're saying is reasonable or not. Hmm. All right, Victoria, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Interesting discussion. Victoria Schroff is an animal lawyer practicing at Schroff & Associates in Vancouver. I mean, I get it. I have two dogs and a cat myself. They are part of the family. But do you want to enshrine that in legislation that would then... I think potentially lead to some of these other kind of slippery slope situations. What about stratas? What about buildings that say no pets? What if you're a landlord or what if you're a renter and, you know, can you no longer say, well, no, this, this is part of my family. You can't deny me, you know, a rental space because this pet is with me. Have we considered all those possibilities of the ramifications and consequences of that? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. 